We're going to start with the first, the second part of this talk. And it is 20 minutes after 11. I want to be done by a quarter of 12 and allow 15 minutes for us to come let us reason together. Um, so here we go. I am talking about the achievement of the first Christian generation from the death of Jesus, the Jesus community in 27, 28, 29, up until the death of Ignatius in 105. And in that time, we see the church has come of age, an original rural movement is now acculturated to an urban context. A Jewish movement is now primarily Gentile. A Semitic-speaking society is now writing, preaching, evangelizing in Greek. A once Palestinian movement is now thoroughly cosmopolitan. Greco-Roman, it's actively spreading in the influential Antioch-Rome corridor. It's no longer a synagogue, but it's a church, no longer meeting on Sabbath, but on Sundays, with a greatly expanded Bible consisting of Christian scriptures written on a scroll, not in a codex, not celebrating Passover, but celebrating the Eucharist. Yes, this is a church. It's not a Jewish wannabe, this is a church. Now, the point that I want to talk today is not to repeat the adaptations, but to talk about the continuity. And as we're going to see, this is the one point that the early church emphasized the most. How can these unprecedented changes be accounted for? And the uh, obvious answer to this, and it's a sad answer, is we don't know because this first generation covered its tracks pretty well. Or, perhaps better, uh, later generations covered their tracks for them. But the single most important answer to this question, even if it's not the complete answer, is that Christianity showed itself, unlike all those other associations and societies that I mentioned, to be a restlessly adaptive community that claimed significance not for a particular group, but for all creation. We think about this statement that Jesus says in John, when the Son of Man is lifted up, how does it go? He will what? There we go. Um, I can't believe that the synagogue ever said that. Certainly, uh, the Pythagorean cult never said that. The Magna Mater cult wouldn't say that. We have within Christianity, in its very DNA structure, something that is universal, and unless it is universal, the structure is itself jeopardized. When Jesus included a tax collector in his chosen 12, when he embraced and healed a leper, when he placed a woman named Mary at his feet in the position of a disciple, when he crossed the Sea of Galilee to the Gentile pig 
farming Decapolis that served the Roman army. When he sent the first missionary, a Gentile, go tell your people what the Lord has done for you. That's the first missionary. When Jesus did these and other similar things, he was expressing this universal impulse of Christianity. And whatever Christianity was, it could not be that if it did not have this wide reach. We see this in the uh, book of the Apocalypse where over and over again, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, every race, this kind of emphasis is the reflection of the church's self-understanding and its mission. When the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, or when he wrote in um, Romans that he must first go to Jerusalem for Pentecost and then on to Rome and then on to Spain, he wrote that from being in Corinth, that's like standing in St. Louis and say, I want to go to L.A., but I first have to go to Washington, D.C. Paul is giving voice to the geographical inclusiveness of the gospel. This centrifugal missionary force is inherent in Christianity. When Paul, the same apostle, asserts, and I love this in 1 Corinthians, that he is a free man. And as a free man, then we expect him to talk about what he is not indebted to do. Listen now, he puts it. He is a free man, but as such, he has enslaved himself to Christ so that he might gain adherence to the faith. Becoming a Jew to Jews in order to gain Jews. Submitting to the law, to those under the law, to gain those under the law. Becoming to those without the law, like one without the law, to gain those without the law. Becoming weak in order to gain the weak. Willing, in fact, to become whatever he needed to become in order to win those in whatever state he found them. Isn't that a remarkable statement? To become whatever I need to become to win those in whatever state we find them. Hillel will never speak that way. Rabbi Johann ben Zakkai will not speak that way. Plato does not speak that way. Neither does Socrates. Epictetus, who is the most democratic of them all. The slave who becomes a stoic, he cannot and does not speak that way. But every Christian in the Jesus movement does. This is what it means to be a fellow worker of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9. When Paul speaks like this, we hear and see the genetic code of the gospel that generates and forms the church. The church embraces the world such as its messenger and representative. Paul must do the same. 
Now, the point that I want to make here that's essential to grasp is a simple one, and that is that Christianity did not simply survive the tumultuous and inevitable changes when it transitioned from Galilee to Antioch. It's one thing for us to hunker down in a storm and survive it. That is not the picture that we see. There is some advantage in that in certain circumstances. There are circumstances in life when we have to survive them. To survive is, to, is, is it's a great victory. We all go through such tra- uh, trials and passages. But this is not what Christianity is about. The fact that Christianity survived is, of course, remarkable. But Christianity did more than survive. There was something at the heart and essence of the movement that required these changes. It's like Jesus healing on the Sabbath. It's not just that he healed on the Sabbath. It would have been better if he could have done it the day before, the day after, but he didn't have a choice. No. The fact that he's constantly criticized as being a Sabbath breaker and healing on the Sabbath means that he is choosing to heal on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath is the day of the completion of creation and this is the right time to heal somebody. That's a profoundly important theological statement. What is for his Jewish opponents, Sabbath breaking, is for him a confessional act of grace. And so the church requires such changes, or Christianity would not have remained Christian. We do know, in fact, that there was a sect called the Ebionites, called the Nazarenes, called a number of other things um, by the Orthodox Christians who did not want to integrate into the mainstream of Gentile Christianity. They wanted to remain as a Jewish sect, and they remained that way for at least three centuries. That's a really long time. That's another 100 years than America has remained a nation. So these sects don't come and go quickly, but that that Ebionite sect refused to accept this full complement of adaptation that we are talking about here. The first Christian generation uh, has entered into puberty. Something powerful and terrible (laughs) (laughs) is transforming it. And through the church, the society is going to be transformed as well. If the contortions of puberty are too strong uh, for that first 75 years, then think in terms of yeast. Uh, It's much more gradual and less impressive than is puberty, but it explodes that solid mass of dough in a much less illustrative way. Nevertheless, it changes and transforms it. In its first 75 years, the Christian movement changed almost beyond recognition. And the change was not fortuitous or extraneous, but in some way it was essential and inherent inherent to the movement. Now here is another point that I want to make, and that is, it's true that Christianity was uniquely engaged, engineered to engage the Greco-Roman world 
in ways that no other cult or religion or association engaged it. But here's the, side, the flip side of that coin. Christianity did not forsake its essence in adapting to these contexts. The analogy of hormonal change is helpful here because the onset of puberty in a 10 or a 12-year-old begins a, a wonderful but profound process that will change practically everything about that young person except it doesn't change that person's DNA. It's still the same. I quote Martin Hengel here once again. The nucleus of that first generation, or better, the guiding line, in my opinion, is the development of Christology. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow morning. And only in the second place, church organization. Hang on, says, if you want to get the, uh, your finger on the pulse here, your, your thumb on, no, your, which one, yeah, it must be your, if you want to get the pulse of, uh, <laughs> of this patient, don't look to church organization. Don't look to church structure. Now that's, that's a bit challenging, is it not? Because we love to come up with, with ways and means. I'm not going to use the word gimmick, but, but uh, things that we can do. And Hengel says that will be to look in the wrong area. This change did not take place by an organizational genius. It took place by Christology. Here's his words, faith, not social structure, was the propelling power. It's very simple. I like that. I believe that. Faith, not social structure, was the propelling power. The essence of the thing we know of the gospel was not eradicated by the adaptations that we have described. Now, we know of forms of adaptation that are so complete that the essence has been lost. I'm a perfect example of this. Perhaps you are too. Uh, my ancestry is British. Welsh, I think. My wife's is German. She always thought she, she was British, and when she found out she was German, she, she was depressed for several years. <laughs> <laughs> I just laugh at her. But you know what? It doesn't matter. We have been so thoroughly acculturated into America. We have been pureed. <laughs> in the American stewing pot. That whatever German and Janie and whatever English and Jim has just washed out. I'm, a, I'm just an indigenized American. Sorry. My adaptation is so complete that the essence of what I once was is gone. But this is not what happened to Christianity. One of the early Christian, great Christian Writers, we don't know his name, the Epistle of Diognetus, a marvelous piece, one of those inferior pieces of literature, talks about this dance, this tension between substance and adaptation to the Roman world. And that's exactly the point we're talking about, is it not? In chapter 5, Diognetus says this, Christians participate in everything as citizens, and they endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, <clears throat> and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their children. 
They share their food, but not their wives. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but they transcend them. They love everyone, and by everyone they are hated. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. Wow, isn't, I'm just pausing here for an editorial comment. That's the right order. The world says the order is life and then death. It just seems natural, but it's not the Christian order. In Romans chapter 14, we know that Christ died and lived. The order for us now is death and life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer got this in life, uh, um, Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a person, he calls him to, you know the answer. Everybody finds this depressing, come and die. People say, gee, that's all the Christians have to look forward to. Nope, you don't understand Bonhoeffer. The death comes at the start, not at the end. Once you have died, then you're free to live. Until you have died, you are not free. Bonhoeffer says this death that we are called to is the first step of faith. It's not what I have to dread when I'm 70 or 80. Death, life. Diognetus got this. They put us to death, yet we are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. Christians are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet God vindicates them. And listen to this. What the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. I'm quoting the epistle of Diognetus, D-I-O-G-N-E-T-U-S. In the Apostolic Fathers, chapter 5. D-I-O-G, Diognetus, Diognetus. We all have had the experience, you as pastors, more than most people have seen a corpse. It's a remarkable experience, is it not? Because, especially if the person has just died, or was well-preserved, it looks exactly like the person we already knew. No question who that person is. But, talk about this, a contrastive but. The most essential thing which cannot be seen is missing. That, that mysterious thing that we call the soul, the breath of life, the elan vital. Diognetus says that's what Christians are in the world. We change a corpse into a living being. Diognetus understands this tension between adaptation and substance. The adaptation is only successful insofar as the substance is retained. Once the substance is lost, the corpse cannot arise. 
Diognetus describes how Christianity is in the world, but it's not of it. Easy to say, easy to say. A profound mystery. Through the many and various adaptations, Christianity retains its essence. Here's the best way I can put it. In its first 75 years, the church shows itself capable of almost infinite, unlimited adaptability. What other ways could the church have adapted that it didn't? I suppose there could have been some, but I don't know what they were. In the first 75 years, the church shows itself capable of almost unlimited adaptability, yet it is characterized throughout by unmistakable continuity. And here I must make a most remarkable and unexpected observation. I have talked about these fundamental changes that Christianity underwent in its first generation. The most interesting thing to me as I read the apostolic fathers, the Didache, the Diognetus, uh, the seven letters of Ignatius, martyrdom of Polycarp, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, uh, Papias. Most remarkable things to me as I read these is the early church curiously, inexplicably, makes no mention of these changes. At no place in this literature do you see, hey, do you guys uh, in posterity recognize what we've just done? Let me just recount it for you. Our 12-step program of changing the world. Never. They do not mention these, and if they do mention them, they do not celebrate them with fanfare. What appears to us as so essential did not appear to them that way. And there's a reason for this. Because you and I live in an age in which historical change takes place through sociological and material factors. We owe that to Marx primarily, but we're still living in his shadow. These uh, philo uh, historians say, if you really want to know what makes change, if you want to know what makes the world tick, you have to look to things like economics, race, material factors. And so consequently, we in the modern world look back and look for event. What happened? This is for us important. All of our movies are this way. They're action-oriented. We've all seen 10,000 flaming, freaking car crashes. <laughs> We've seen 100,000 flaming love scenes. We've seen fist fights go to even Christian movies like uh, The Passion of the Christ. How many times is Jesus flogged in that movie? 200. I can only tell you that no human body can withstand 200 floggings. 20 to 25, 40 at the max, you are dead. Not 200. We look for event. What great events caused these changes? The ancient world does not look for event. 
It looks for the qualitative things that change history, rather than the quantitative things. And hence, in the ancient world, and this is true in the biblical world, all of the great events will be uh, signified by speeches, not by descriptions of wars. Read the Old Testament. has all these great war scenes, or at least the preparation for it, but you never see the war described. Just said the Israelites were routed, or they routed somebody. Went, oh gosh, we want to know what happened. You're not going to be told. It's for us a bummer. What do we get instead? A speech. Now, when you watch a Tom Cruise movie, you don't get a speech from him. <laughs> you don't get a speech from anybody. Most of these movies don't have to have speech because they are so packed with action. The ancient world was not interested in that. They wanted a speech. What does a speech do? A speech interprets. It takes events and tells you what they mean. Without that speech, you wouldn't know what they mean. They could have been capable of infinite forms of interpretation, and they would all be wrong, or all but one would be wrong. The speech is the critical point. And this is what the early church wants to see and to identify in those first 75 years. It's the faith once delivered to the saints they want to celebrate, not the various adaptations that that faith took place. That's what you see in this literature. The oneness, the continuity. And that continuity comes in two ways. The early Christians are celebrating one, two, one, two. One is kerygma, two is ethics. One is the proclamation of the gospel, two is its effect on life. One is the articulation of the good news of the kingdom of God, the other one is the shape that it takes in human life, the transformative effect that it has. Those are the two, the one-two punch that you see within the early church. They're rather indifferent to these remarkable monumental changes, and they just want to keep their nose to the scent. Kerygma ethics. This is who Christ is, and this is the way it shapes our life. We find this in Papias. And in Irenaeus, who never tire of telling us that their Episcopal offices and authority are traced back to John and to Jesus. They're not talking about the changes they've done. They want you to know they stand in that tradition and they preach that word. We find them in the Roman symbol of faith, that earliest form of the Apostles' Creed. Already in the year 150, it's in place. This then becomes the gauge by which doctrine is determined. We find it in Second Clement and Ignatius and Smyrna who talk about if we do the will of God our Father, we belong to the first church, the spiritual church that, believed, that existed in heaven even before the creation of the world. Isn't that remarkable? When we confess the triune God and allow our lives to be shaped by it, we belong to the eternal community of God that existed even perhaps around the time the Trinity came into being. We find it above all 
in that marvelous church history of, a, of a Eusebius, who in his monumental work in the first four chapters demonstrates that the gospel is already present in Nuce in a nutshell in the Old Testament. It's not a new revelation. It's a completed revelation. Kerygma and ethics. Soul, body. The animating force of the world is the church. It's that that's celebrated. Tomorrow I want to talk about the next three days, four things, who Christ is celebrated throughout the early church, what the church is, what discipleship is, and what mission is, according to this grand tradition that begins with Jesus and the gospel, moves into the book of Acts and into the early church. Okay, I'm got, we've got 12 minutes, one for each of the apostles, so... Um, <laughs> Speak with the wisdom of the apostles. Let's talk about this. Uh, we will end at uh, 12 o'clock, I think. Am I right? Okay, well, then we have maybe 20 minutes. Okay? Okay, there you are. <laughs> okay, my question has to do with the movement of the Holy Spirit. Uh, clearly in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is the animating force of the church. And you're talking about the, Holy, the, the church is the animating force in the world. How do those early um, church fathers and writers talk about the spirit and the movement of the spirit? Is there much conversation about that among them? Right. Um, oh, this is, this is why I'm going to benefit so much from being here, apart from the spiritual growth that you all give me. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I haven't mentioned the Spirit, have I? And Acts does. You could actually entitle Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That would be a, that would be a permissible title. That's, I'm just, Steve, I'm just going to have to put that in my pipe and kind of smoke it as I go along here. But I would say this. In general, the Holy Spirit gets short shrift in the early church. <laughs> yes, somebody said, and now. Look at in the original Roman symbol. It's Trinitarian, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ. And, of course, this is a ballooned-out area, Pontius Pilate. And how does it begin? And in the Holy Spirit, period. And even the original Chalcedonian Creed just said, and in the Holy Spirit. When it gets into the Constantinopolitan version of the, of the Chalcedonian Creed, 381, we then have a more developed and what looks like to us a more mature Pneumatology. But the, whole, the, the, the early church is in a 
is in a head-on collision with its society. It's in a major battle in who Christ is. It's just struggling mightily to, di- to, de- to define and to defend this, this statement that in Jesus Christ we have the Logos becomes Sarks. No other religion ever before nor since has ever claimed that we have an authentic incarnational um, uh, experience of God in a human being. No other religion did. And in order to sustain that and defend that, first against Jews, Jews attacked us really strongly. Um, and I'm reading a very interesting book right now by Peter Shaver, who's a Jew, teaches at Princeton University, and he's talking about how strong and how successfully the early Christians were in defending their Christology, and that this actually influenced the rabbis. He says, we've, we've heard this wrong. You Christians have always been taught that, that it was the rabbinic tradition that influenced you. No. You had such a strong Christology, it had so much influence on Judaism that we Jews were having to react against it, and we were not reacting as strongly as you were. This is coming from a Jew. So I think, Steve, long answer for not a very good answer, uh, is that the church is so involved in uh, defending this one front, the Christological front, that the pneumatological, pneumatological front doesn't get the kind of attention it wants. Now, it certainly would have admitted that the Holy Spirit is at work in all of this. And I'm going to talk about this when I talk about an echo uh, in the next couple of days. But it's going to be an assumed um, work. What was that? Oh, okay. It's going to be, a, it's going to be an assumed... Uh, presence of the Holy Spirit rather than an articulated one. Of the gospel of the, of the Spirit, I, I'm wondering where the apostolic tradition and laying on of hands might have been part of the continuity of communicating pneumatology with uh, the kerygma. Right. The laying on of hands, is this not kind of a sacrament of pneumatology? It could be, Dave, but it doesn't have to be, does it? Because the laying on of hands comes out of the Jewish tradition, and it comes from the tradition of blessing. That's not quite the Holy Spirit. It's an easy uh, transfer, isn't it? But remember when Jacob puts his hands on Manasseh uh, and the boys of, of Joseph and this is a time of blessing. It's a transfer of the blessing. This, this is common. And I, so I don't think that we have to equate the laying on hands with the, the bestowal of the Holy Spirit automatically. Yes? Uh, I found myself trying to imagine how you know, we respond to the great teachings, the continuity within the teachings, the things you've been telling us. But this, these changes are not made in society without really that understanding and belief and, and continuity, continuity being present in, in all the people who adhere to this rural sect of Judaism that somehow got out of its bounds. 
<laughs> How did that happen? I mean, I, I, we, we pastors struggle with that very thing. That, mm. you know, we, we think we're teaching fine, you know. We're maintaining our, our faithfulness to the gospel. And yet find that the people who listen may not be transforming the world. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Oh, uh, And maybe you're going to talk about this when you talk about the church. And the other thing is that I have a feeling that the answer probably has something to do with the Holy Spirit, as was already mentioned. <laughs> well, yes, but let's, let's not think of the Holy Spirit as just magic, because then, we're, then we are abdicating any uh, need to think and act with regard to the work that we should be doing. Your question is a very important one. Actually, in my final talk, I want to talk a little bit about this um, because I think that this, you have, if I understood your question, you really have your finger on the pulse of, for me, a, a major need today in the church. And I'm just going to prime the pump with this. Um, when we think of the task before the church. In my lifetime, we have thought of the way the church needs to adapt its message, extend its message, accommodate its message, tailor its message so that the youth culture uh, understands it, so that the non-church understand it, so that migrants within our community understand it, and so forth, right? And I think that's true. The constant is that we all knew what the message was. The problem was, was it in its transmission, faulty transmission, failed transmission, unsuccessful transmission, something on the receive, receiving end, not the donor end. To me, that's a real problem because I think we're now seeing a collapse at the donor end an ambiguity, an uncertainty, a loss of faith, even a rejection of much of the orthodox, creedal, confessional tradition of the church. It's a big question to me what we're actually transmitting. And here, I think we need to reopen the idea, not that we, in any sense, minimize the missional nature of the church, I want to just affirm that strongly, but that we, uh, uh, that we reclaim or claim for the first time, at least in our generation, the proclamational content uh, uh, theology of the church. which means now we have to, I don't like to use a war image, but we now have to fight on two fronts rather than just one. That's always harder. I think, I think the, the loss of confidence in the gospel on the, from us in the church is perhaps even the graver problem than our lack of success in communicating that to the world. I want to talk about that on the 
last talk. Joel. Um, infant Church, Acts 15, Council of Jerusalem. Um, it seems to be that the entire reason that they were able to set aside uh, a large part of their Judaism was uh, upon the evidence that Gentiles had demonstrated the receipt of the Holy Spirit in the same way that the apostles had. Mm -hmm. And now my Pentecostal friends will say that sign that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit was clearly the speaking in tongues. And of course it doesn't say that. Um, I'm just curious, since we're talking pneumatology, um, what your thoughts are on that? Because that was a convincing, a convincing turning point for them. Right. That that council in chapter 15 is such an important point. I don't quite see that the speaking in tongues is the key here. For me, and you can tell me if you agree or not, it's this speech speech that James makes. Now, James um, is one of the disciples, apostles who has not been driven from Jerusalem. He, we know that he has immense stature with the Jewish community as well as the Christian. Josephus actually talks more about James than he does even about John the Baptist and Jesus. And Josephus knows about James. He's the one Christian in Jerusalem who seems to have some credibility with the Jewish community. That's the way we would put it today. And so when James has, stays in Jerusalem with a mother church, Let's all these other guys go off and do their thing, but he's all, and when Paul comes back, what does he want them to do? He wants Paul to be sure that he is cooperating with the Jewish community there. He does not want to see this rift take place. What does James do? He then quotes from Amos. He says, I've listened to both of you guys speak, the Pharisees, and now I've listened to Paul and Peter, and this is the fulfillment of Amos 12. I will raise up the tent of David that has fallen. That which has been destroyed, I will revivify and renew it. In order that those who are left can praise the Lord, so that all of the Gentiles may inherit the, uh, the, the work of Israel. This is a remarkable statement. It's not about speaking in tongues. James is saying, bam, I talked about significance earlier, didn't I? James is all of a sudden, wait a minute. This must mean that in the gospel, the long-awaited but often forgotten Gentile mission is already in Israel. Jonah gives us the Gentile mission. Second, Isaiah gives us a Gentile mission. Already in the call of Abraham in chapter 12, all the nations of the world will be blessed for you. That was easily forgotten in Judaism, wasn't it? James is saying, here it is. This is the Holy Spirit's completion of that uh, uh, prophecy. He's on board. He speaks for the church. And according to Luke and Acts 15, that problem's solved. The church never goes back across that bridge. And we owe it to James. That's how I see that. Right, Jim. Um, it seems to me that the early church was not passive in confronting what they perceived to be errors from the way or 
the, the savior, thinking about not only Tertullian's debates with Marcion, but also some of those earlier debates, it was very aggressive. Yeah, they were. And I'm thinking, how would you translate that into the 21st century church? I mean, the need or the, <clears throat> I'm just trying to think of pulling something from that first century where there was a, this aggressive pronouncing of the word. The aggression was not grabbing people by the collar and, 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 and forcing them into a religion, but it was a proclaiming. Um, now, Don, I, I think you're right in the observation. We could use some other words, um, assertive, maybe a little weaker, um, decisive. They, they were insistent that the world not be ambiguous and uninformed about what motivated them, right? So you raised this question. I, I've got one thing I'd like to say. I don't think it's very profound. Tell me what you would say to your own question. I'm saying that I, what I'm seeing is a church intimidated by its culture and not being... Um, I mean, I see some Christians who are very um, antagonistic and, 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 and unkind. But at the same time, I don't know that the truth is being courageously presented. I, I, I guess that's more a question. I, I really, I mean, our model is to give sermons on Sunday morning or to write books. But... I don't know that that's what the early church was yeah. restricting oh, itself. I just love these questions. It's just such a great, great community to be involved in. Um, I want to use the word timid instead of intimidated. I'm just going to tell you how I see it, and I could be wrong, but I probably am. I think that we are moving in this liminal area away from center stage in which we have been privileged and applauded. So you could preach a good sermon on Sunday morning and it might even be, preach, uh, uh, might even be printed in the local newspaper. It wasn't unusual when you were born. Well, that doesn't happen today. I doubt that you've ever had a sermon preached, printed in the last 25 or 30 years. <clears throat> We're now in an area in which the culture, we're in an era, is giving significant pushback and resistance to us. And I think our natural response is to try to sh um, share the gospel of those things that are the most offensive in order that we can gain the most acceptance from the culture without offending it. I think that's entirely understandable. I think it's predictable. It's the way we would always respond. I get in a fight with my wife. What do I do? I try to revisit the whole thing and say it in a way that uh, is more sensitive. I give some ground. Don't want to see a breach. 
But I don't think it's going to work because I think that it's motivated by something that the culture won't accept, and that is it's motivated by the ethos of niceness rather than truth. It's so interesting that the word nice never occurs in the Bible. And yet it is the most common descriptor of Christianity in the communities that I'm a part of. I liked what Carol said last night. She said it, I love what Carol said because she's even more intense than I am. <laughs> Where is Carol? Is she here? Oh, I like you a lot already. Um, but I mean, you put this right, you put the cookies on the bottom shelf last night. And I think that we're in a liminal space here at Dawn, and the thing that I think is really good for us is that maybe we will gain our voice for the first time. And it will no longer be this kind of timid and, and uh, not a complaining voice, but this, this um, begging voice. So that we can actually state the particularity and peculiarity of the gospel in such a way. And Carol talked about through personal testimony. It's a very strong, important way to do that. In other ways as well. And this is what we see in Tertullian. Tertullian is not trying to be nice. He really is trying to get people to understand the problems with Marcion and the benefits of orthodoxy. Jim. One more question or comment. In the, the kerygma of the gospel, there's the, the very important piece of speaking the gospel out there and this urge of the church to, to take the gospel to the streets. And in my looking at church history the last couple years, I mean, Whitfield and what he did is a significant point the early church, um, without the structure of buildings, and there's something in me that wants to take the gospel out there so that it's in the newspaper again. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about that, that reflection on that, that it seems that it's part of the, the gospel we talk about um, show the gospel and sometimes use words and all that fluff, you know, whatever. And it's not even from St. Francis. We have a gospel to proclaim. Right. I, I'm glad you said that. I don't like that, that quotation. We hear it too much. The things that really mean the most to you, to me, to all of us, we find ways to articulate, don't we? When my students are in love, I know it. <laughs> yeah. Words are a wonderful gift, and words rightly used are wonderfully blessing to those who hear them. Jim, I'm just glad that you are in a place in ministry where you can do the call of God that you see. I th I'm thrilled in that. You are a wild stallion, and to put you in the barnyard is to just kill your spirit. 
and you are in a situation where you've got the whole dang state of, of uh, Wyoming to run in, and, or Redding, California. And I just praise God for that, and I hope that you will do that to the best of your ability. Um, one of the things I'm struck with, and, and something you said this morning kind of triggered memories. Um, when I was with university, we used to do manuscript study. Yes, right. And uh, I was one of the teachers of uh, a guy named Paul Byers taught me to do manuscript study and uh, teach it. And one of the things we were struck by at the beginning of Mark is there's this thing about preparation uh -huh. where the Old Testament prophet is quoted at the beginning of Mark, you know, prepare right. you the way of the Lord. And I'm struck in Acts over and over again where you see evangelistic events, there's a preparation. Right. Uh, usually there's a series sort of, usually there's a prayer, and then there's a miracle, and then there's a proclamation. And when you said the, uh, the, the idea of uh, how unique Jesus was in terms of God coming in, I, I absolutely agree. But on the other hand, I think that the Greco-Roman world was a little bit prepared for the hero savior. Hercules, Achilles, Ajax, they had those sort of hero saviors. They're all flawed. Mm -hmm. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he fulfills all of the expectations of the hero savior without the flaws. Mm -hmm. And so part of the thing I wonder is if you have any idea what God might be preparing in the 21st century. How is he preparing our culture maybe to speak a new word or a new way or a new methodology because I think he's preparing something. I'm just not sure what it is. Okay, you're going to have to answer the last part of that because, or we'll have to answer the last part together at another point. I want to speak to the, the first part about the Greco-Roman world being prepared by the Hercules or Zeus who appears. Yes, but it's a very imperfect preparation or um, anticipation. I'm sure you would agree with that. Because in the Greco-Roman world, all of those... Uh, gods that were condescending into human form were not incarnations. That is to say, they were not born into humanity and they did not die in humanity. Zeus shows up in human form a lot, of course. Why? Because he wants to philander with pretty women. Yeah. <laughs> Hera gets back to him. They all play off in their various power struggles in, in the battles of uh, you know, the Iliad. But they're just showing up long enough to do their errand, and then they're back to Mount Olympus where they can continue their schemes. The incarnation is the actual birth into this. This is why the virgin birth is an essential doctrine. He is a human being. He's come into the human world in the same way that you and I have. And more than that, he must suffer and die in this world. The Greek gods do not suffer. When the going gets tough and it's tough to get going, they get out. So the, and this is Marcion's mistake. Marcion says Jesus just kind of shows up like a bolt of lightning. There's no preparation and there's no suffering. The Christian gospel says this is an authentic human experience and all authentic human experiences are written on the canvas of suffering and death. Now, what God is going to do in our generation, whoa, that's why we're here and that's why we want to think together and pray together. But um, God is doing something new in our time. Let's pray and work together so that it uh, allows us to be adaptable 
but also faithful to the essence of the faith once handed down to all of the saints. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Mount Hermon, for all of the people, men and women, boys and girls who are here this day. May your blessing be upon us, inspire our understanding to understand significance as well as fact, to get meaning, and above all, to know that your Holy Spirit is working in and through us to do a good work. May we trust you, may we surrender to you in faith and assurance that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you.